Hello, my name is Emily Jansen, and this is the Leadership is Female podcast. I'm a female leader in sports. I'm the general manager of a AAA baseball team in minor league baseball, and I'm the first woman to hold this title in nearly 20 years. And I'm here with the Leadership is Female podcast to make sure that this amount of time never goes by again before another woman leads. Marion Wright Edelman said, you can't be what you can't see. So I am here to interview successful women in sport to uncover opportunity, learn the tips, learn from our mistakes, learn from our successes to get you to the top faster. Join me and my guests week after week, season after season, as we reach back to extend a hand to pull you forward. I will lead her forward because leadership is female. Samantha Rogers is a social capitalist and sport philanthropy is her voice of choice. With a career that has brought her to Toronto, Vancouver, and back home to Montreal, Samantha has worked in the social services, health, education, and sports sectors, all of which have led to ultimately pursue her passion of using sport to drive social change. She leads the leading sport philanthropy firm in Canada. Relate Social Capital, where they strategize, create, and execute fund development and engagement programs that cultivate and grow revenue generation strategies for sports organizations and governing bodies. So what does this all mean? She's been successful in raising money in amateur sport for Row Canada and many others, and also engaging alumni in fundraising campaigns for universities. Sport philanthropy is the definition of the good that comes out of sports. What she offers today on the podcast is a story of perseverance, creating a successful business around your passion, successfully raising money and how to do it, advice on creating a pitch, the importance of taking time for yourself, and so much more. Join me in this empowering conversation with Samantha Rogers. Welcome to the Leadership is Female podcast, Samantha Rogers, co-founder and chief strategist at Relate Social Capital. We're so excited to have you here today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, our pleasure. So I want to kick it to you and say, um, ask you who you are, what you do, and how you got there. Okay, well, that's, I feel like a lot of quote loaded questions at once. Uh, I am Samantha Rogers. I am Canadian. I'm based in Montreal. And so a uh, bilingual kid grew up here um, playing sports and was always passionate about sport and philanthropy. Never knew that I could mix the two. And um, I just built that into a career that made sense for me and have been trying to figure it out along the way. And uh, it's been a really fun experience because I think, um, you know, when you look at it, that just figuring it out as you go a little bit, not totally, it takes you down a bunch of different paths. And I've been really grateful for the many paths that I've gone down and the um, many different experiences that I've had. And before you led and created Relate Social Capital, you were an athlete. You played softball for almost 13 years, and then you worked at the university afterwards. Um, Tell us a little bit about that transition from student athlete to uh, then employee in sports. Yeah, so I um, I started playing softball when I was four years old and um, played my whole life and was one of those girls who, you know, fell into that group where we just fell out of sport. Um, A lot of the girls that I played with went on and um, competed in the Olympics. And I always have regrets around that because it was just one of those things where I didn't have, I guess, the padding to keep me down the the pathway uh, to continue playing and, and, and pursuing it at a higher level. So it was um, really disappointing when I look back now and I see all the figures that that happened. Uh, sorry, when I look back at all the stats and the figures of, of women in sport and know that, you know, I was part of that group that fell out of there. But being able to uh, work with student athletes when I transitioned um, into working in college athletics was just one of the things I'm the most grateful for because I always say in the philanthropic space, um, I had never wanted to work at a university. And when I was asked by McGill University to come and work for them, 
the first thing I thought was, you know, I don't really want to go raise money for wealthy athletes. I don't think that's a, a space for me. I think my talents would be best used elsewhere. And I always emphasize that naive and uh, judgmental way, I'd say, to look at, at, at a, a career in sport philanthropy, because within three minutes of being on campus, I was just totally enamored with it. I loved everything that I was doing. And I really, um, what really struck me was how many student athletes had gotten to McGill University based on their athletic skill, which was now providing them an entire paid education. And that, that little piece of understanding that people were getting an opportunity from sport just stuck with me. And, and really that became um, the foundation of everything that I do now is using sport for good. Yeah, I love that. There's two two parts of what you said. The first part was that transition from being an athlete your whole childhood and then having to make that decision on whether or not you pursue that sport beyond high school, whether you do that in college or you try to go professionally as a woman. And there's a big difference in between between um, the woman's experience in college and the man's experience in college. I had to make the same type of decision. Um, I was a really competitive soccer player uh, growing up on travel teams and loved the sport and my teammates and ultimately decided that in college, it was time to focus on my studies and and grow that part of my career. Um, I did a small stint uh, with, with the D1 team and I, it turns out I made the right decision in the first place for me. And Mm -hmm. I think it's a hard choice for, for girls who are becoming women. You know, do I pursue and focus solely on education? Do I become a student athlete? You know, how, how am I going to make this transition? And so, you know, sharing what that felt like for you, I think is important because a lot of us reflect back and there's times where you can say, man, if I only, if I only Mm -hmm. did this, or if I only tried that, but ultimately, you know, you are in such an incredible space right now because at Relate Social Capital, you're the leading sport philanthropy firm in Canada. You strategize, create, and execute fund development and engagement programs that cultivate and grow revenue generation strategies. And I want you to talk about Relate, how you did it. You you talked a little bit about, you know, what it means to, um, what it means to sports, but Talk about Relate and, and how you grew that company. It takes tremendous courage to start your own, and uh, we want to hear about it. Thank you. Yeah, a lot of people say that, and I think uh, I, I don't look at it that way, but I, I sort of force myself to say, you know, it is important to take chances. And, and with Relate, it was born out of the idea of when I did get into college athletics, I had spent my career working in the charitable sector and I credit my grandfather with that. He was very adamant about always ensuring that there was philanthropic initiatives weaved in, in through our daily lives, but I'd never realized I could make a career out of it. And when, uh, when I did, I, I worked in the social sector, I worked in education, I worked in health research and I lived in, in various cities across Canada and, when I was at McGill in college athletics, I realized that it was such a unique experience and essentially it felt like I was on an island and everybody who works in the charitable charitable space understood my role from that piece. Everyone who worked in the athletic space understood my role on that side of things, but nobody understood the combo of it. And over time, and I think this happens with so many women, but over time, I didn't even realize that I had been developing a really unique skill set and that I was identifying essentially this very niche space. And when I started to think about it, I remember still to this day when I Googled sport philanthropy, because I thought, okay, I used to be interested in corporate philanthropy. Would this be considered sport philanthropy? Like I kind of just put the two words together and Googled it and and didn't really come across much other than a program at George Washington University, which I ended up taking. Um, And when I saw that it seemed like this wide open space, I thought, if I'm so passionate about this, I'm sure there are many others. 
and we don't talk about it enough. We don't talk about all the good that comes out of sport. I mean, you see different leagues or teams who may be doing community initiatives, but you don't actually really talk about sport in a philanthropic way. And so um, it, you know, seemed a little bit serendipitous. A, an old prof of mine reached out and said that one of our national sport federations, Rowing Canada, which ended up being our first client who took a chance on us, that they were looking for somebody to come in and fundraise for them. And that really shifted how I, how I looked at things because I never thought that our governing bodies raised money. And that sent me down a whole rabbit hole of understanding amateur sport and how it was funded and understanding the, the, the severe need in that space. Um, and, you know, at the time it was, it was a friend of mine that I had, had gone to school with. We thought, could we pitch this to them? Are we crazy? We don't know anyone in this space. Uh, looking back on it now, I really think how incredible it was that they took a chance on us because knowing how sometimes uh, exclusive the sports space could be that they, they took a chance on, on two girls that they didn't even know. Um, but we pitched it as a contract position saying, you know, we'll be your in-house team because you don't need to hire a full-time person right now. And then the rest is kind of history that snowballed into more and more federations coming on board and working with us, uh, really identifying gaps in the market. You know, a long time we thought about, are we, are we crazy and you know no one's people have thought about this and avoided this opportunity because it was a stupid opportunity or has no one really looked at it this way and now five years later I can say it was just that nobody was looking at it in that way and, and so you know we were able to identify a, a serious gap there and, and so it's been fun ever since now we work uh, with everything from grassroots sports to pro leagues to individual athletes on their philanthropic investment and and um and yeah and just you know right now we're even looking into sport betting so it's it's really it's really fun to see how many different opportunities come up when you sort of open yourself up to the fact that anything can happen and and try to say yes to things and and go for it if you can um but also uh making sure to take care of your mental health too. Cause I think that's been a, a big learning on my end is, is making sure that, you know, you can serve others if you're not taking care of yourself first. Yeah. And before I touch on that for a second, you had started off by saying how important it is to take chances and open yourself up to the opportunity. And when you did, you created this incredible business and found this niche space. I mean, they say like the riches are in the niches, like those areas <laughs> where people aren't diving deep and, and you did. And I think that's incredible. And before we dig more into that, because you mentioned mental health, I just got to share with the audience. When I first reached out to Samantha about being on the <laughs> podcast, she had this, uh, out of office message on her, uh, email that said, I'm taking a break. And I'll be back. And it was like, I don't know, a week or so or a week and a half later, but the way that you had phrased, like I'm taking a break to refresh and recharge. And I'm paraphrasing here, but I thought this girl is cool. Like she, <laughs> she is taking care of herself. She is retreating. She, I think you even wrote in your out of office, I'm going to come back refreshed. Yeah. I said, I was taking a brain break. I think. Was yes. A brain not break that popped into my head and thank you for saying that because a quick just detour from that I'd say it's been close to two years ago I took my first real break from Relate Social Capital and I had so much anxiety going into taking a break and I don't know, it, you know, you can just spiral, but it was, you know, what do people need me? And all it was is that I had committed to myself that I would go up to a cottage for three days and not turn on my phone for at least 48 hours. And it was in August when things are quiet. Like I just had this whole idea that everything was going to fall apart. And what I find really interesting that I could look back in a very positive way now because uh, one of my dear friends at McGill, who uh, was the men's hockey coach, um, he would just was a life coach to me, but he, he, when, when I went away, I just kept thinking like, oh my gosh, what if something happens? What if something happens? 
he actually passed away in that 48 hours span when I had my phone off. So I literally turned on my phone to the worst news that someone did die, which was my worst fear. You know, like what if something terrible happens and I couldn't have done anything about it anyway. You know, it was awful. Any Zen that I had out of my 48 hours was obviously gone, but I thought in his death, he actually taught me the best life lesson is that there's nothing I could have done anyway. Like there's, there was, it happened. And, uh, and so ever since then, I really try to make a point to take time and, I thought also as an entrepreneur, like you're not allowed to have out of offices. That was, that was my mentality for so long. Like, you know, I came up, I was talking about this a couple of weeks ago on a panel that I came up exactly at that girl boss hustle culture, Gary V mentality, where, you know, if you're not working 28 hours a day, that you're not doing it good enough that, you know, I had to be at every single women in, fill in the blanks event. And, and it was so overwhelming that I did, you know, go into a space where I developed anxiety and I, it was horrible. And I, I, you know, just didn't like who I was. And it was a client who pointed out to me that I had been different, that I was behaving differently or, or that they noticed that something was up with me and that kind of snapped me out of it. But Ever since then, it's just, I realized nothing is worth it. And I think if we've learned anything through 2020 and the pandemic, it's that you have to take care of yourself. This has been the year of boundaries for me where I put in boundaries, which is exactly why um, I put that out of office. And the feedback that I've gotten from a lot of people, and it's I, which is kind of nice. And at first it was uh, almost embarrassing because I thought maybe I do share too much, but that it's really important to speak about the hard things. And I've had a lot of students even reach out and say, you don't glamorize this space. You, you, you're really real and honest about it. And I kind of have started wearing that as a badge of honor. And I thought, yeah, I do need a brain break. So that's what I'm going to put in my out of office. Because I think if I say it, then other people might say it. And it's really important that we touch on that because especially now everybody, you know, is, is so overwhelmed and, and there's a lot going on. So I think it is very important that we talk about that. Yeah. I mean, I'm over here on the other end of the microphone, just nodding my head, just like, wow, thank you for sharing all of that and, and sharing that vulnerability because whether you know it or not, you stating that gives others permission for some reason as women, or maybe just as humans, we're always seeking permission in our decisions. Mm -hmm. And so you telling us what you did the, the, the world didn't fall apart underneath you. And even if it did, you know, a lot of it's out of our control anyway. And it's things that the pieces you can pick up when you get back. But the most important thing is taking care of yourself. And if you lose yourself, really what's left? Well, exactly. And, and when my friend passed away, I thought if I hadn't just come out of you know, 48 hours of really quiet Zen time. I don't know how I'd be handling this right now. Not that I think there's, you can ever be prepared for that, but I was so grateful that I at least had some time to myself. And it was amazing what happens when there's silence. You know, I, all of a sudden within, within, I'd say almost 15, 20 hours, it was the creativity was coming back. And, and it's so true because you just saying that reminded me uh, when I, when I was in living in Toronto, I think I was maybe in year three, three and four of really social capital. And I'd be at these, again, like a women in fill in the blanks event. And it was so funny because all the women would be talking about things and, you know, oh, this is great. This is great. And then I tested it sometimes. I'd, I'd say, you know, well, I'm really struggling with this or, and then it was the second somebody was vulnerable about something then everybody opened up and I thought, why are we talking about this stuff? This is the stuff that I, you know, you need support with. You need to know that uh, you're not crazy and, and to try to normalize it. So I think that's really important. And I also think that's where you find the productive conversation as well. Like you have to release a bit of that vulnerability and a bit of, bit about the issues that you're having or the roadblocks you're encountering before you can really find like the steps and the courage to move through it. Cause it's not all rainbows and butterflies. There's a lot of hard work, um, that goes along the way. And I mean, I'm sorry, so sorry to hear about the loss of your friend. Losing somebody is one of the hardest things, but I think it also provides us this amazing amount of perspective on what's really important in life. Totally. 
and doing good work is really important and you're doing great work, but so is taking care of yourself and being with the people around you and enjoying this life that we are so blessed to be living. For sure. So talking about relate, I got to ask you for a bit of, of story time. Like you've laid out sort of what the business does and, and, and what you do around philanthropy for, for teams and individuals and athletes. Um, tell us about a big win you've had in your business and then what were the contributing factors to make it work so well? I think, like I said earlier, I was, I was reflecting on this question and, and a huge win was just that, a a governing body said yes to us, that they took a chance on us. And I was really fortunate and I didn't realize it at the time. And, you know, of course, hindsight's always 2020, but I was really fortunate when I took the role at McGill. And the reason why we're called Relate Social Capital is that I've always believed so much in relationships that, you know, especially I think also when people hear about philanthropy or raising money they think, oh, I could never ask for money. And, and that was something that I said, I would never ask anyone for money because that makes me terribly uncomfortable. And it was my prof who said, you know, if you're good at what you do, you'd never have to ask for a dime in your life. And that's true. I have never asked anyone for money, which nobody believes me, but that is the God's honest truth. And when, um, when I look at what I do, I always say, for me, it's about legacy and it's about helping people be able to have some kind of a legacy. Everybody wants to be known for something. Nobody wants to just come and live here and then and and leave and not have any kind of um, impact. And so when when I was able to get to McGill, it allowed me the opportunity to test these theories of a different way of of raising money, a different way of positioning philanthropy. And a lot of people sort of looked at me and said, that's not going to work or that's not the right way of doing things. But I was so adamant that there was a different way of doing things. And because I was allowed to test that theory when I left and started relate and, and, and started working with rowing Canada, that was such a huge win because we went into this whole new space. No one had ever really been in it before. And we said, we're going to try to raise money and we're going to, you know, if, if you know, about amateur sport, you know, oftentimes athletes leave their sport and they are not usually happy with the organization or federation. There's usually some kind of a bit of a rub there. Um, and so what I was trying to do was apply a university strategy in the sense of let's build up our alumni, let's really engage our community and they will give back. And, you know, within a year we were seeing, you know, 600 people donating back to the Federation. We were seeing alumni coming back and having these anniversary celebrations. And it was just so cool to see an idea that, that I had that I was so passionate about come to life. And, and that really, for me, was such a big win just because when people tell you that something's not going to work or, you know, I think especially getting into the sports space when you haven't come up through sport. And I say that I hadn't come up as a career through sport. Um, a lot of people doubt you. So being able to be, be, be proving them wrong and, and, and seeing success from something was just, I'll, I'll never forget that. Cause that was just such a, a big, big win for us in that space. You guys, we have a new website, leadershipisfemale.com. Please visit us and know that we are here to help get you to the top faster. Are you a career female looking for an edge? Are you looking for answers on how you can level up? Our purpose is to bring interviews with female leaders in sports each week through this podcast, Leadership is Female, so you can uncover opportunities, hear tips to elevate your career, Learn from our mistakes and successes so that you can get to the top faster. We're giving you all the advice we know now that we wish we knew then. We're extending a hand back to lead you forward. Let's go. Visit leadershipisfemale.com. Join our newsletter. Check out all the episodes of the podcast and stay tuned for more resources to lead you forward. Leadershipisfemale.com. Throughout this season of Leadership is Female, I've talked with several founders of the Pro Sports Assembly. I'm glad to become a founder too and invite you to join us at prosportsassembly.com. 
We are the Association for People Who Work in Professional Sports. Our core purpose is the advancement of diverse and inclusive leadership. From finance to innovation, operations and sales to social responsibility, marketing, human resources, and analytics, the Assembly aims to ensure pro sports has a diverse and talented pipeline to lead these efforts and more. Visit prosportsassembly.com to learn more. And you talked a little bit about how you won that first client with Rowing Canada. So since that time, like how have you developed your pitching skills for business development for relate. There's so many of our listeners who are working for teams or organizations. They're pitching, they're selling. Give us some of of the tips that you've got that have led to your success in building a great client roster. Sure. So I like to tell people our second client we pitched was Canada Basketball and um, still have never worked with them, but we will change that one day. And I keep, I keep, um, our pitch to them because it's so awful, but I like it because it keeps you humble. Like when I look at it, it was an old logo design. It's just, it's horrific. Um, you know, we were asked what we were asked. It was just crazy. So I like to keep that, uh, to see how far we've come, but really a lot of it, like I said, comes down to relationships and, and I find, I think women, it's really difficult for us to, you know, pump ourselves up or pat ourselves on our backs. But when I look at how far we've come in a, sector that one isn't really built for women it's not really built for women who have never been there before uh and and seeing how we've been able to navigate that it's so much of it has come down to relationships and really taking the time to understand the industry i think what we're really lucky with as well is we brought a different perspective and i really leaned into having a different perspective where it was, you know, have you thought about this or just trying to show our value in a different way. Um, but certainly, you know, I, I love the attention to detail when we're putting pitches together, making sure that we're picking up on things that other people may not necessarily pick up on, um, understanding the people that are in the community, something I learned very early on working at the university was how different every sport is culturally. So really being able to zone in on what is that culture like, who are the people that you need to know, show that you have some interest. But I think it's also really important to be yourself because, you know, all the feedback I got right away was, well, what do you know about football? Well, what do you know about soccer? And and we'd always joke and say, well, we've worked in, you know, children's hospitals before and we're not a heart surgeon, but we're able to raise money for that. So I think I'll be okay. I'll, you know, it's easier for me to learn about the sports and the culture than it is to have to learn about actually the strategies and, 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 and having the work ethic. So I think it's just, it's important to make sure that you be yourself, but also to really focus on who are the champions, because for us, it was, you know, we networked and we had people that were looking out for us. And then it was a referral after a referral and, and, and you grow and, you know, I think when I look back at the different like jumps I made along the way, I, like I said, I went down and eventually did a, a sport executive, sport philanthropy executive program at, at George Washington University. And that opened up a whole new network. And I think when you really make sure that you follow up with people and send thank yous and, and keep those relationships, there's people that I know I could always go back to. And also just you know, you never want to burn bridges because I tell a lot of students now that I am dealing with people that I interned for their wife, you know, 13 years ago, and it always comes back. So you really need to be careful with, with how you manage yourself because your reputation will always um, precede you. So. Okay. That was amazing. Samantha, (laughs) there were six things that I was seriously writing down on my paper that I heard you say. So in that pitch, first, attention to detail. Mm -hmm. Second, show your value in a different way. Third, understand the people in the room, the community and their industry and what they might be looking for. Four, be yourself. Five, follow up and send thank yous. And six, don't ever burn a bridge. Yeah. Amazing, amazing advice. (laughs) 
And so, okay, on the advice train, what advice do you have for sports teams who are looking to create philanthropic programs? Where should they start? Uh, a lot of teams do a little for a lot of different causes in their community. Do you support this approach or support something that's more narrow? I think the knee-jerk reaction is now to go where where it's, I don't want to say trendy, but where, you know, where you think there might be more opportunity or where there might be an expectation for you to be working. What is the most important thing is looking at your community, um, polling your community and really understanding what they're looking for and finding one, maybe two causes or initiatives that are really important to you. And really be as authentic about that as you can be. Because if you cannot be authentic about it, then I would just say, don't even bother. It's not worth it because it has to be, it has to be just a really authentic way of diving into it. It cannot be performative. I think, especially now what we've been seeing throughout the pandemic is, you know, people want to go down mental health. They want to go into the BIPOC community. They want to go into women in sport. And, and yes, all of those are really important. And I think that's a different conversation in terms of like culturally, what does your organization look like? And, and those should not be additional, you know, nice to have. Those should just be baked into everything that you do. But when you see a, a team or a league that's just kind of going in every which way, it takes away from the work that they're actually trying to do. So, you know, I, I we're just off the heels of an initiative that we worked on with the NHL and it's been really cool to see, uh, you know, it's no secret the NHL I think has was struggling to figure out where they fit particularly um, within, within the race space and, and, and what we saw the, the outcomes last spring, but what they did really well in this initiative was uh, we worked with them and we brought it together a different uh, kind of like a, a three-way partnership where we had um, Willie O'Ree, who was the first black hockey player in the NHL. And there's a great documentary written uh, and produced about him. And so we used that documentary with the producer, uh, Bryant McBride. And then we had uh, classroom champions who was our client that we worked with uh, to build out an educator's guide and then the NHL came on board to support it. And so to see how authentic that was and that at every single step of the way, it was not performative. It was really truly to say, how do we change? How do we change the narrative and how do we shift the conversation? And then to have the pleasure of working with all of the different clubs and hearing how they wanted to implement their own initiative, because the race conversation will look different in every single market. And so now we're in phase two where we are having these, these mini panel discussions. And it's really exciting to see because every team is bringing their own flavor. They're not really doing what they think they should be doing. They're doing what makes sense to them. And, and I think you also need buy-in, right? So that's why, why I was saying earlier that it's important to pull uh, your employees and your community and, and make sure and do a bit of a gut check that whatever it is you choose to dive into really makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I think you said a couple of, of really key points there. Authentic. What's authentic to your team, your brand, your community asking outside of, of just this small bubble and trying to focus those efforts as much as you can so that the impact can be stronger. I think that's phenomenal, phenomenal advice. No surprise. Um, as an entrepreneur, what does your day-to-day -day look like and how do you structure your time to get it all done? As most of my listeners are women um, or men who have big, ambitious goals and dreams in the sports industry and are taking on a lot. So anytime we can get some advice on some hacks to, um, to uh, get it all done and be more organized, I am ready to receive and distribute those, <laughs> that advice. So what do you have? Yeah, I don't know if I have hacks, uh, because I'm actually in awe of women like yourself who are raising families, because I have no idea how anyone could do that. Um, I, I, I have learned the same lesson over and over again, that I do not do well outside of routine. 
So that is something that I've been working on a lot to stay within a routine because that structure really keeps me healthy. It keeps me productive, um, except for the fact that there is no day to day. Every single day is different. I think it's been a little bit better during the pandemic, but typically any given week, uh, you know, I, I'm traveling or there's different things going on. So that's um, been a real struggle. But I think throughout the pandemic, I have implemented a good routine that I need to make sure that I maintain. And it's funny, I, I am such a morning person. So I had this idea that I had to be up and working you know, by 7 8 a.m. And this pandemic has forced me to actually, I only start work now around like 10.30 in the morning because I still get up really early, but I take all the time for myself. And I started, uh, and even though it's Montreal and it's freezing here in the winter, I get up every morning and I walk for an hour and I listen to podcasts or sometimes I just walk in silence and think. And then I come home and I work out and I really take my time. I make sure that I do something sort of creative in the morning when I first wake up, whether sometimes I like to meditate or just stretch. Um, sometimes I like to read. Sometimes I just like to do research on, on, on different things. And that has been a huge game changer for me because when I've been able to put myself first right away and get myself sort of centered and settled, then when the day goes sideways, which typically happens, then I feel a little bit more prepared. And that's just been great for me. And I also have stopped, you know, sitting on my couch with my computer at 11 o'clock at night watching TV. I think those are really important um, boundaries to set to really make sure that you do turn off. I think what's really difficult, especially a lot of entrepreneurs do work from home. And I think especially now during the pandemic, a lot of people are. And, and so not having that um, office to leave, you really do have to be strict with yourself and, and shutting down at a certain point so you can, you know, have like your home time and, and chill out and, and, and not be on the clock 24 seven. Yeah, it's so true. The, the lines have been blurring for quite some time between our phones and our laptops. And, um, then in the last year when we've brought a lot of this home with us or been working from home, it's hard to have a cutoff point for um, sure. So your, your advice to take that time for yourself, uh, is so important. It avoids that burnout phase. And then I think it also avoids the autopilot. Like if you are just in this constant stream of work for an innumerable amount of hours day after day, it, it's like, have you never had a break to like stop and then restart again to even measure like at what level you're performing? Oh, that's it. That, that was a big thing for me. I read this great book about trying to work in bursts of 90 minutes. And, you know, at one point, a few months before the pandemic, I was going to my workspace at 6am and I would work till 5pm and then I would go and spin for an hour and, and I'd get home and then, you know, I'd start to panic that I had all these things to do so I could get to bed early enough to wake, get enough sleep to wake up. And I thought I would probably be more productive in four hours than I am working from six till five. It was just, it was, but, you know, I think you have to go through those and, and learn those own, your own lessons and, same with having tough conversations with clients. Sometimes, you know, I have to say like, I don't answer, I'm not going to answer Slack on the weekend. I'm not available after a certain time, you know, unless it's an emergency, but really, you know, it was a mentor of mine who said, you have to teach people how to treat you. You can't be answering emails at 10 o'clock at night because they're going to think that you are available and you will answer at 10 o'clock at night or on the weekends. And I think it's a really scary thing to do. But I have found that, it, yes, it was scary, but it actually worked out well because I haven't had any pushback from anyone. And, and I think, again, everybody's starting to feel it at this point. So it's, it's a bit welcomed. Yeah, well, I love what you said there. You have to teach people how to treat you, sort of what, what you'll put up with, what you'll stand for mm -hmm. when you're available. Do you think that was a tipping point in your career? For sure. I mean, especially working in college athletics, I had, I was just telling somebody this yesterday, I had three stomach ulcers when I worked at the university because it was just a shift in expectations. You know, you're having to be everywhere and having a, having 
10 varsity teams and, you know, a handful of other teams, it just had never stopped. And I, and I just, I was making myself sick. I got better. And then within relate, I, I started going down that same path again. So it is really important, I think, to make sure. And it's scary because I had a student say, well, I'm so young, I'm junior in my role. How do I tell, you know, one of the managing partners that, I'm not available. And I said, yeah, of course it's scary. I actually, I'm not really sure how that, you know, how that conversation goes because, and I do think it's people who are in leadership positions that should be taking more responsibility there. It's, it, it requires a cultural shift. And again, hopefully we're going to see a bit more of that through all of this, but it is, it is really difficult. And, and I, it's really important that we don't come up that way anymore with these expectations that you just have to be on 24 seven, or, you know, if you do have to be on for a specific time that you really encourage people to take time back and, and take time for themselves. Cause they're only going to come back more refreshed and more creative and, and, and ready to go. Yeah. And I, I've got a leadership tip here that it's taken me a minute to develop and it's when your staff requests time off right? As long as it's not, you know, over the weekend of your biggest event of the year or something like, you know, most of the time they're being completely reasonable with their request and how you receive that request is everything to that employee. So yes, you can take your trip. Where are you going? What are you most looking forward to? ask them some questions about their trip. Let them be, let it be okay for them to be excited to, leave work and have a great experience and come back recharged. And then when they get back in the office, you know, maybe you have a one-on-one scheduled or you have some meetings when they, when they arrive back, instead of just jumping right into the agenda, ask them about their trip. It's such a small thing, but it is all the difference in the world to that employee. For sure. And giving them permission. I mean, I think some of the best bosses that I've ever had were the ones that said, you know what, we did a really great job and we worked really hard. Come in tomorrow after lunch or, you know, head home early. And and just that is such a, it's so, you know, it's nothing to be able to do that. But like you said, it means so much to the employees. And I remember thinking like, I feel so valued. I feel so valued because you've seen that I've been, you know, working here, hosting at this event for the past three nights and, and to, to not feel guilty about wanting to take some of that time. And, and I think too, it's just a lot of the time it's just understanding, you know, like I'd have situations where I knew that a coach was driving home from the field at 10 o'clock at night. And that was the only time he could call me, but that's when I could have a great call with him. So I think it's a lot of, uh, of give and take, but as long as you, you know, make sure that you're trying to keep yourself centered and, and, and also I think as a leader to make sure that you're looking out for those people that do go above and beyond and, and you try to reward them accordingly, it, it, it goes so far. I mean, it's the basis of humanity. Like want to be seen, (laughs) want to be seen. And it's the, it's small conversations that add up to um, so much visibility for that employee that, oh my, you know, they recognize me. They're curious about me. They want to know what I'm doing. Um, You know, he or she's genuinely curious on if I had a good time and it, it, it just, it, changes things, um, in the environment and the culture of an organization. Um, when you allow your employees that space to breathe, they come back better. Oh my gosh. Always 10 out of 10. Always. hundred <laughs> percent. So, okay. Gosh, so much we've talked about today. Um, but I want to ask you, we've talked a lot about women today and, um, you've got a sweatshirt on that says pay women in big neon, neon letters. Um, so let's, before we, we leave today, let's talk a little bit more, more about women and what are some advice that you can lend to women that they can apply to their careers today so that they can level up tomorrow, earn that equal pay, take a seat at the table, what do you got for us? Oh gosh. I mean, I was thinking about this too. And what I find really difficult about that is it's so hard to look back because, you know, I remember 
being afraid of speaking up. I remember being um, unsure of my, I'm still unsure of myself all the time. I think as women, we're really bad at, you know, being our biggest cheerleader. And I think that's what you need to be is your biggest cheerleader because no one else is going to advocate more for you than you. It's just physically not possible. No one will be able to know you better than yourself. And there are so many times where I am so unsure of myself and I, you know, have let things just accumulate, accumulate, accumulate. And all of a sudden, you know, something happens that I thought, okay, I saw that coming. And I let myself think that I was crazy for having those feelings. And, and it's so important to trust your gut. Um, and it's scary. I mean, uh, I share a lot that when I decided to, to jump full time and into relate social capital, like I said, it felt like I was jumping. It still feels like I'm jumping off a cliff every day. <laughs> but when I decided, um, to do that, it was, it was, I'll never forget it. I, I was called into a meeting with three men who, who were my superiors, who essentially said, you know, you've done such a great job here that we're going to bring in this other guy to come in and manage you. And I just remember being so heartbroken because all I could think was, and, and I felt almost so cocky thinking this about myself that I pushed it away, but I thought, I know that there's actually not one other person who's better suited for this than I am. There isn't, but I couldn't even vocalize that because it felt too uncomfortable to say that. And I left the room and, and called my business partner at the time and said, that's it. Like we're, we can both be full time. Let's take this opportunity that, that we had been going after. And it's, you know, risky as hell, but I have to bet on myself and we have to bet on each other. And I think women are so good at looking at the collective, which is great because I also think we need to, and you, you've mentioned this a lot of times too, like the reach back, like you have to, you know, I think men sometimes are so quick to shut the door. And I think that's what happens with women too, is that you think, and that's how oppression works, right? Like you think there's this opportunity that I have to shut the door behind me because there's no room for anyone else. And I better keep my mouth shut and I better behave and I better not try to advocate for anyone else. But I've actually learned the opposite that if you go out and you find those networks of people and I was so fortunate at McGill, I had so many male coaches be my biggest cheerleaders. They would stand up for me. I think that's what's so important too for women. Like women don't need to keep talking in an, you know, like echo chamber about what's wrong. We really need the men to help advocate for us, but it's, it's hard. It's like I said, it was hard. You know, I, in that meeting, I had the decision to fight for myself and I tried to a little bit, you know, one of the coaches gave me a, a the best advice said, bring in a huge bottle of water. And, and every time they talk, drink water, because your silence will kill them. Like let them talk more than you speak. And it was such, it was so great. Cause I for sure rattled them. Um, but yeah, it was hard. And I look back on it now and I think like, I wish I had advocated more for myself, but the writing was also on the wall. And, and even though leaving and, and starting my own thing is, is scary, you know, it worked out, it worked out well and it's hopefully it will work out well, but yeah, you have to advocate for yourself and it's really hard. It's a scary thing to do, but I think as long as we have others in our corner, it does make it a bit easier. Yeah, 100%. And it's, it's what this podcast is all about as well. Like you might not know me personally or the women that I interview, but if you can hear what we're saying, like we're fighting the same fight and we're being vocal about it and we're trying to lead you forward. We're putting the tips down and talking, being vulnerable about things we've gone through. So you can learn from them and, and get a leg up moving forward. We are your allies and, you know, guys, we need your voices too. And I think you're, you're spot on that, you know, your best advice is that you've got to be your own biggest cheerleader because no one else can do it as good as you can. And even though it can be hard and uncomfortable, like nothing that's truly, truly worth it is ever really that easy. Totally. I am so grateful. Like I, I always think, and I actually, cause relate just turned five in January and I wrote a blog post about it and thought if it all goes away tomorrow, at least I tried. 
And at least I've grown because I put myself unknowingly and unwillingly in a lot of situations that I probably never would have, but I'm so grateful because again, I'm still alive. I'm still functioning. I still am working. So, so it's worked out, but I think, you know, we tend to build things up in our heads too, which makes it a bit more difficult, but it it certainly, um, certainly goes a long way in, in, in trusting yourself. 100%. So finish every episode by asking the guest for their favorite quote. So Samantha, can you share yours? My favorite quote, and I mean, I have a lot, but it's always been go instead where there is no path and leave a trail by Emerson. Cause I think that suits, suits my journey very well. 100% and brings this episode completely full circle Samantha Rogers, you have been incredible co-founder and chief strategist of Relate Social Capital. Thank you for sharing your voice with us on Leadership is Female. Thank you for having me. With that, let's get into the top four takeaways. Number one, it's important to take chances for this is what opens you up to new opportunities. Number two, be your own biggest cheerleader. No one knows you better than you. No one can cheer for you louder than you can cheer for yourself. Number three, in a pitch, pay attention to the details, show value in a new way, understand the people in the room and make sure what you are presenting is relevant to those clients specifically, follow up and send thank yous and don't burn bridges. Number four, listen really carefully here. You have to teach people how to treat you. Hey leaders, if you want to be in for a treat, definitely subscribe to the show if you have not done so already, because we have so many amazing episodes coming up. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify, wherever you listen so you don't miss out. And if you leave us a review or post about me or tag leadership is female on your Instagram stories, To talk about the show, we'll enter you into a giveaway. We're giving away something every single month. Some of my favorite things from my favorite work bag to my favorite sunglasses. Make sure that you spread the word and we will reward you for that. I'll also send you a personal thank you note and repost your comments and reviews. Last thing, did this episode bring you any insights, ideas, aha moments, anything you are inspired by. If so, take one second and share the link, post about it on your Instagram, text your friend, email, so many ways to share leadership is female. And if you do post about this show, again, don't forget to tag at leadership is female or at Emily Jansen or my awesome guest today. Because knowing that this conversation made a difference for you means the world to us and we love to see it. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Leadership is Female podcast. It means the world to me that you chose to spend your time with this podcast today. If you like this episode, subscribe, share, and review. What can you do today to lead her forward? We will do our part to lead her forward because leadership is female. Thank you for joining us. This podcast was recorded and edited by Emily Jansen, public relations by Paige Hegedus, and distributed by Anchor FM.